signal, saying, Whoever I shall kiss, he is the one. Seize him, lead him away, under guard. And after coming, he immediately went to him, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. They laid hands on, on him and seized him. But a certain one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. What just happened and what was just read um, is heavy. There's a lot, of, uh, a lot of weight in what was happening here. A lot of scripture is being fulfilled. And um, it's so easy to know that Jesus is the God-man and forget about the manhood, his person, his feeling, his involvement. Shortest passage in scripture is... Jesus wept, and it wasn't because he stubbed his toe or hurt himself. It was because of how deeply he felt. Um, I think it's easy to think of Jesus as maybe disengaged, right? He's sovereign and knows all things. He's powerful. He set all of those things aside and became in all ways like us. Now think about that, to become in all ways like a person means experiencing the birthing process. means learning to control his physical faculties, if you're sticking with me here. Jesus was in all ways like us. The fullness of God existing in a baby, in an infant, in a toddler. Fascinating, right? Imagine Jesus as a toddler. I mean, toddlers are so cute, right? We have one that runs around with a little dinosaur shirt, right? chubby little legs where he has dimples on the front of his knees. It's easy to miss the weight of what is happening. And I wonder, have you ever felt crushed, just flattened out, just emotionally betrayed? This is the experience that Jesus is having. This is how we see this text. Jesus knows what is coming, but it's still no less impactful to watch it play out. He knows he'll be deceived. He knows who's going to do it. He knows how it's going to happen. But to watch someone that you care for lie to you, hurt you while they're looking at you. I remember a day that I came home from school and um, I'd gotten into trouble. Not insignificant trouble, fairly significant trouble at school. And uh, the first night I didn't see my dad, and I knew that that was a problem. Um, so I just went to sleep, and I left and I went uh, to school the next day. Um, I knew that the fallout was going to be significant. School was a blur. 
I came home and I remember walking in the front door of the house and I saw my dad waiting for me. Lots of words were exchanged in this moment. And then he said, I don't ever want to see you again. I was 15 years old. And since that day, I've seen my father five times. I'm 42. I don't think he ever came to look for me, but I was on my own at 15. My mother lived somewhere else. I didn't call her. That's the kind of gravity of betrayal that Jesus is experiencing times a million. This is a disciple. This is one of the 12. This is someone who walked with him and talked with him and heard everything that he had to teach, who warned them, who brought them into the garden and said, hey, I want you to stay up and pray with me. Now, they thought they were praying with him, for him. They were praying with him at the same time, but for themselves. And I think we'll see that in a minute. But maybe you know a story of betrayal that allows you to taste some of what Jesus fully drank. And appreciating that doesn't let us wallow in our sadness. It pulls us out of it completely. Because Jesus is a victor over everything. He transcends every truth, every reality, every wrong, every hurt is all made right in Christ. And so what we see is God's radical grace. I say radical, not like a guy with cool checkered shoes that just got off of a BMX bike. Radical. But radical, like extreme. The grace of God is so extreme, a word like radical, which has been neutered and have all of its meaning taken from it, back in its original sense, radical, so uncontextualizable. His grace. We met this morning as a, as a leadership team looking through an article written by J.C. Ryle, I think. Yeah? Talking about God's sovereignty. And it's so interesting, there's all these ideas of, of God, right? They try to describe God's sovereignty away by saying it's like a corridor of time. And so God can see what's going to happen at the end, and so he's not really controlling things, he just knows the outcome. That's right, and it's wrong. That doesn't describe the fullness of God's sovereignty. That doesn't describe God's election. That doesn't describe the way that God sovereignly chooses. But that is true. He is certainly able to understand the way things will be. As Pastor John Nicholas said, and it sounds good, so probably he took, there's no rogue Adam that's outside of God's control. Not A-D-A-M. T-O-M. No rogue Adams. So if you can imagine, you know, think of like uh, little wind-up toys. Remember those? Before kids had phones. They had these little things, okay? Stick with me, guys. And you would twist the side and it had physical gears inside. It wasn't an app. You would twist it, right? And then there would be some kind of a spring or some mechanism that would hold that load until you let it go. And then the toy was stupid. It just went, and it like moved all over the place, like on a table. Like I remember when I was a kid and somebody got me like this uh, football game, Okay? Um, it was it was a game of football, and they bought it for me, and, and I didn't like football, so was disinterested in this toy, and I never understood it. You were supposed to take it, and you were supposed to set it down, and you would put football guys on it, and you would wind it up, and it would shake them, and somehow this was a game of football, 
So imagine all these little wind-up toys, right? And you have them in the hand, and you set them on the table, and you open the hand. They just, you know, they move all over the table. This is the way I think about God loosing humanity. Each of those individual humans has some kind of a desire. It buzzes up, do its sinful thing, right? It hates on people, it's mean, it's cruel, it's angering, it's frustrating, it yells at people in traffic, right? Um, it does all of these different things, but it's off doing exactly what it wants to do. And at any point, the Lord can take his arms and scoop that whole table in. He's in control of everything that happens. This is what we see when we read the book of Job. You can, touch his, you, you, can, you can touch his possessions, but you may not touch his health. You can go this far and no further, and God sets a mile marker. Satan can't exceed where God allows him to go. And we're seeing that with Jesus. This is all fulfillment. Jesus foreknew all of this. This was going to happen. Jesus knew it. He knew who the betrayer was. The other 11 did not know who the betrayer was. Jesus kept that hidden. He allowed Judas to kind of float around and be a part of everyone. Judas had to leap over grace and sprint towards sin. And so what we'll see today in this passage is we'll see Jesus come prepared for the full cup of God's wrath We'll see Peter prepared to fight. One was prepared with their, for their own will. The other with God's. And the difference was prayer. That's what Jesus called them to in the garden, was to pray, to stay up with him and pray. And they would fall asleep. And they would fall asleep. And they would fall asleep. And so we see Peter ready to split someone's head open. Missed by a little, graze off an ear. Now Mark doesn't talk about it, but maybe you know what happens next. Maybe you don't. Prepare to be surprised. Let's look at Mark 14, verses 43. I don't know, let's start in 43 and see what happens. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Judas, one of the twelve. Mark says this, I think, with a kind of a, a deep, head-shaking confusion. We said Jesus knew clearly who the betrayer was. The other eleven didn't. They're finding this out in near real time that Judas is the betrayer. In fact, maybe when they see Judas coming, they, they don't even know what's happening quite yet, right? They still haven't put the pieces together yet. They see Judas, and as we'll see in some of the other gospel writers, they see um, a, a throng of like military police, civilian guards, people with pitchforks and torches. And then Judas is kind of maybe at the front of the pack, trying to stay a little bit in advance of all of them. John 18, verses 3 through 5, gives a little bit more insight into what was happening. This is one of, the, one of the stories that's helpful to read across the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When you, when you look at the story across the, 
across all of those, you get a, a fuller picture of what happened. Um, and that's one of the things that's actually helpful in validating about the synoptic gospels is that's the way that people are, right? When I go into a room and I describe what I see in a room, it's different perhaps than when you go into a room and you describe what you see in the room. We were in the same room. We just notice different things because we're wired in different ways. We pay attention to different things. John Nicholas goes into a room and he'll tell you about the conversations he had. I go into a room, I'll tell you what the floor looks like. I'm avoiding conversation, right? <laughs> I'm looking down. People are like, oh, I thought you were a people person. I'm like, no, I force it. I'm faking it. And I go home and I sleep to make up for it. It takes energy. John just talks and talks and he talks. It's amazing. John 18, verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. I mean, listen to that description. Judas, Jesus' friend, one of the twelve, procured a band of soldiers and officers. And they said, look, we're going to go, we're going to go get Jesus. And so, Somehow they thought, okay, we're going to go get Jesus. All right, I want you to go get the lanterns. I want you to go get the torches. I want you to go get the weapons. This is 11 people praying in an olive garden. What? <laughs> You know, breadsticks, super toscana. <laughs> so disappointing. They probably had to wait like 45 minutes just to get in, right? <laughs> Party of two, we called ahead. Okay, great. You're, uh, we'll see you tomorrow, but don't leave. Jesus brings them to the Olive Garden leaves some of them behind at the gate, grabs three, brings them in further with him. And just before the text that we're studying today, Mark 14, 41 says, and he came to them a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. This is God's radical grace. Jesus is still 
teaching his disciples. He is still preparing them to build his church because his church is important. His church is the structure that he leaves behind for his lasting witness on earth. Filled and made up with his disciples who, as we talked about this morning, replicate as a natural function of being under Jesus' lordship. Because Jesus says something, and his people of his church, they go and they do it. And so he's still teaching these disciples because they're the foundation of the church. They're the foundation that the whole church is going to be built on. There's the disciples and the apostles. This is God's radical grace. He's getting ready to be handed over, betrayed into the hands of sinners. You can almost imagine all of these people are like little buzzing, chattering teeth. And he's just going to open his hands and let them go. He doesn't have to direct them. They'll go and they'll vibrate and they'll buzz off and do their own sinful thing. Some of them will mock Jesus. Some of them will make a, 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 a thorn crown and put it on his head and, and make fun of him and say, oh, you're the king, then get yourself down as he's ministering to the other two people next to him. Some of them will spit on him. Some of them will offer sour wine. And then looking back, perhaps, if you could imagine, any of these individual players were to become a believer afterwards and then be walked through the Scriptures and think, oh my gosh, I fulfilled that. I did that. The Scripture spoke of what I would do. John Piper writes a Christmas poem I think is fascinating. Extra biblical, totally made up. But in this poem, he writes of the innkeeper. And the poem picks up where Jesus is resurrected but not yet ascended. He comes to the inn. And inside is a man sitting alone. And he asks, what's going on? And he said, well... The Messiah was born here, and later my wife and our whole family was here, and these soldiers came in, and they were looking for every male child. They were just killing everything. And my wife was trying to protect our babies, and soldiers were hacking, murder. I get so tired year after year after year of the same fluffy Christmas story with little candy canes. And listen, I'm into all that. I love that stuff. Our house, we, I think we, I don't know, at some point we counted, I think we have like 12 Christmas trees. Love it. But at the same time, the cost of our sin is so great, we lose sight of the fact that infocide was taking place after Jesus was born. Every ounce of energy was put into making sure that none of this came to be, and all of this came to be, because it's God's plan. It's impossible that it happened, but it happened. And all of these people who are doing all these things are doing exactly what they want to. God allowed His Son to be turned over to sinful men and women just like us. And then with all of the energy that they poured out against Christ as willing agents with their own personal anger and their own personal vendettas against Him, God by His sovereign grace, satisfied His wrath against sin through those acts against His Son. It's the most incredible story that's ever been. 
but sometimes we're a little busy. Right? Got emails to write, customers to talk to, deadlines to keep up with. Every time I make a decision to do something else, I realize it's a having. It's another having. Everything I have on the table that I'm doing, if I decide to take on something else, everything else is having. Because I only have so much attention. And I can only give it to so many places. So every decision to take on something else is another having across everything. Now, it's not always a true having, right? Sometimes we proportionalize things. Missing the weight of this story, missing the weight of all that God has done, can cause us to allow havings that come into our attention to Scripture. And if you think back in the other direction, usually things cascade and we don't pay attention that our, our attention to Scripture, our, our obedience to God, our lordship, all of those things are waning. But we never look back the other way. If we were to start at our obedience to Christ as Lord and say, well, that's waning because I'm doing this, 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 and this, it's probably a very petty list. Like if you hired someone to follow you around and say, hey, listen, I'm having a hard time seeing where my time goes, so I'm having different people track different things. Your job is to stand behind me and watch me use my phone. <laughs> and just write about the things that I'm doing on my phone, just so I know where my time is going. Because, I mean, you see it, right? Anytime we're anywhere and we're not doing anything, what's the first thing? pulling down, right, because you're seeing, oh, maybe somebody said something else, right? I want to see someone else's sandwich. Or, oh, someone text me. I have to respond right now because they'll be mad if I don't. And so this little thing drives your life. Have you ever been mad at somebody because they didn't text you back? Have you ever thought, maybe they're doing something? Like, maybe they're talking to one of their children. Weird. Maybe they put it down and went outside and lived a life. Maybe they have their Bible out. Maybe they're paying attention to the person that's near them. We get so mad when somebody doesn't write us back. Then you start to get the passive-aggressive. Hey, did you get that email I sent you? Probably. I just don't pay attention to every email I get. And I don't respond to every text I get. And I don't answer every call I get. Because that's my phone. It goes out and it goes out for me. It's not for you to come in. It's not for you to come in and break everything that I'm doing down. And I know that sounds cold and I know that sounds rude, but it's very important for me to do that because of having. I can only put my attention in so many places and it can't always be right here. I have five children. I have responsibility to those children. I think sometimes, I was thinking about this earlier, when we discipline our children sometimes, it's because disciplining them is easier, and really it's because we don't want them to make us look bad. You ever think about that? How am I disciplining my child in this moment? Is it so that they see that God has a holy, righteous standard and a perspective on every aspect of their life? Or is it because I don't want them to embarrass me by doing this thing? I try to give my kids a lot of room and bandwidth to do things, which sometimes makes us seem insane, <laughs> right? Our house is crazy. I'm going to give it to you right now. Our house is crazy. I'm sure every one of the neighbors is like, what in the heck is going on in there? 
Like if sound could, you know, move the walls, it would be bellowing. Like if you come up to my house, you'll probably hear us before you get up to the house. Some of that's on purpose. Some of that's because I'm just lazy and I'm having fun with them. Um, but I have to discipline myself sometimes to say, well, when I'm talking with my kids, I want to give them a perspective, not of you shouldn't do this or you shouldn't do that because it reflects badly on our family. Maybe you've been in a home like that, right? You're going to make us look bad. Don't do that. Who cares? But rather, well, what, is, what is God's perspective on that? Hey, you got in trouble at school today because it seems like maybe you were being mean towards someone. You probably thought it was funny and fun, but you know, how did that person receive that, right? What, is, what does the Bible say, right? What's the golden rule? You know that. Would we want to treat someone like that? No. Okay, so let's have a conversation about that. That's a vastly different kind of discipline than you better not get in, school, in trouble at school tomorrow because I don't want to have to go talk to your teachers. I don't want to have to go talk to your principal. I don't want you to look bad, make us look bad. When I go in for dads and donuts, I want them to think that I'm awesome because my kids just listen. Jesus' display of radical grace is incredible in this moment. He's being betrayed into the hands of sinners, turned over to the government, turned over to the religious leaders who, who aren't going to you know, bring him in and do some light questioning. They're going to brutalize his body. For days, they'll torture him. And his concern is that people are understanding the lesson on his way out so that he'll leave behind a church to rescue you. Verse 43 through 45. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. One of the twelve you ever end up in one of those situations where you just keep repeating the same thing because you're just so surprised by it, so taken aback by it, so trying to process it? I can almost hear that in Mark. One of the twelve. How could he do this? He came up and said, seize him at once. He knows what he's turning Jesus over to. These are people that want to kill him. My goodness, with friends like this. comes up and he greets him with a kiss. Now to us, that sounds weird. If you greet me with a kiss, I'll greet you back with a knee. Even one of the cute European cheek things. Unless you're cute and European, it's not going down. But it's like, it's like a bro hug. You know? Or a, a side hug, right? Because side hugs are for friends. It's, a, it's, it's the special handshake. Everybody knows it's like a four-step handshake. Everybody knows how to fall into it. But you never do that like when you meet someone for the first time, right? Now, all that's changing, right? Because um, now we all fist bump. It's kind of cool for me because I'm a fist bump guy anyway. But the handshake is, you know, the traditional bump, 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 
right? It's like three pumps, no more. Any more than three pumps is weird. Good tension, not a crusher, you know? No weird motion, don't be clammy, all that stuff. This is how we greet people. I like it. But when you greet somebody you know, sometimes, if it's a super familiar thing, you know, you've got the three-step thing with a little slide towards the end, and then it follows up with a bro hug. Because we know each other. We're friends. Judas greets Jesus in a very friendly fashion. It's not like a business as usual. Judas is saying, look, I have a very strong relationship with this person. I'm going to greet him like, just like he's my friend. I'm going to greet no one else like they're my friend. And then you're going to know it's him. When I do that, lock him up in chains and take him away immediately. Judas is getting money to do this. Such a personal friendship level. Now think about who Jesus is, right? Um, sometimes when, when the 12 were walking around, they would go into a town and it was so crazed and frenetic when they would walk down the street that there were so many people that when Jesus said, who touched me, the disciples laughed. Like, what do you mean, Jesus, who touched you? Half of the town is here. Everyone is touching you. Let's go. We've got to move on. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Someone touched me and this is very important. This is the pace of Jesus' life. And Judas is such a tight friend that he can walk right up to Jesus and greet him just like a friend. And he's using that to sell Jesus for money. Could you imagine how hurtful that is? Even knowing it was coming, right? Like if, maybe you've had someone betray you before Maybe you didn't know it was coming. Maybe you did. Maybe you've been in a situation where you know that this person's going to do something hurtful, and then they did, and then you watched it play out. You watched the details of their face. You saw them as they talked to you. You watched them lie to you. You knew all of it. Jesus knew that perfectly. Now he's receiving this friend's greeting from Judas when behind him are hundreds of armed people with torches and lanterns. This is so hurtful, I can only imagine. That's why he said in verse 41, when he found them sleeping the third time, the hour has come, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. This is radical grace. He's delivering grace through total betrayal. And so that salvation can be delivered through it, God will turn His back on His own Son because righteousness has no fellowship with sin and Jesus is becoming the sins of all of those who will call on His name. God has to turn His back on Him. God has to be a fair and righteous judge. At no point during any of this is the sin winked away. All of the sins of those who will be saved is fully treated on Christ, and it begins right here. It's one of his prayers in the garden, right? God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is using the very language of the Psalms in his prayer and is crying out to God. He's so physically distraught that an angel comes and ministers to him through this trial. 
And the three disciples, they're supposed to be praying too because what they don't know is something's coming for them as well. But instead, they take a little nappy. They take a power nap instead of preparing. And we also see different incomes, incomes, outcomes from those who napped versus the one who prayed. Judas comes up. What did he say? Oh, Jesus, hey! How's it going, buddy? If you look at John chapter 18, can we get a little bit more information, a little more background on what's happening in the story? When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. radical grace. Matthew captures some more focus in Matthew 26, verses 49 and 50. And he came up to Jesus at once and he said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, hear these words, friend, do what you came to do. And then they came up and they laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. Friend, do what you came to do. And what he came to do was get paid for turning over Jesus. A straight money transaction. I've got access to Jesus. He's a friend. You pay me. I'll turn them over to you. You just got to take them away right away. Maybe he thought he'd get a little status out of this too because people have toiled over, well, you really didn't get paid very much money. You know, maybe the price of a human slave wasn't that much money. It wasn't like a, you know, astronomical amount of money. It wasn't life-changing. Um, you know, he wasn't going to drive a, a Ferrari and live in a big house now. Maybe he thought he was going to get, you know, like uh, some status among the elite. Um, you know, being the guy who was able to turn Jesus over, right? Maybe he thought he'd have some hero status. Maybe he'd get a parking space downtown. He'd always put his camel right out front. And people would know it was him, have a tag right behind the tail. Betrayer. Maybe, maybe like a, a key to the city gate he'd get, you know, like comically large, doesn't fit anything. I was wondering, what do you do with that? Like, don't give me a key to the city. I'll show up at restaurants with that thing. Oh, yeah, Olive Garden, 45-minute wait? Bingo, bango, let's go. Get me one of the 94 tables that have no one sitting at them. And the 14 cooks out back, if they came in, my supa could come faster. It's hard to understand Judas putting Jesus in the hands of the authorities who wanted him for certain death. And he still can't call Jesus Lord. Just can't do it. 
greets him as rabbi. So cold. So cold. Just, just can't stomach it, right? Can't stand the familiar. Can't call him Lord. It's not true. Verse 46, and they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. I love this a lot. Um, maybe you're like me. If you're one of the 12, you're definitely Peter. First to speak up, first to do something stupid. Um, first to be ready to throw hands, Peter. Verse 47, But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Peter, who assured Jesus he would lay his life down for him, You know, actually, I think he was willing to do that. I think Peter was willing to lay his life down for him. I think you see it right here. I mean, don't forget what's happening. There's hundreds of soldiers with weapons and torches and lanterns. It's not like this is going down in the middle of the night in the parking lot and nobody knows, hey, who just lopped that dude's ear off? And it's not just somebody's ear. This is like the house servant of a very important person, and it was Peter. Mark doesn't record these things. He lops his ear off, right? Probably a near miss, right? He probably wasn't gunning for the ear. He was probably going like straight dead down on top of somebody's head, and they kind of pulled one of these numbers, you know, and it just nicks the old, just Tyson's the, Tyson the ears, but with a sword, not with his mouth. I think Peter was completely willing to lay his life down for Jesus. He, he was ready, right? Two, 200 soldiers back here. I'm drawing my sword and boom, let's throw down. But that's not what Jesus wanted. Jesus asked him to live his life for him, not to lay it down. Jesus is the one who lays his life down for his friends. Then they go live it for him. Pretty easy in the moment to get in a fight or do one, a one-time big thing. Maybe difficult to live under lordship and continually serve and serve and serve. In a face of a world who will hate you because they hated Jesus first. In the face of a world that says the cross that you preach is foolishness. And in a world that we live in today, which is post, post-modern, thinks you're just bananas. And nothing is true. Remember that Jesus, in the garden, praying to God, and three times he tried to get Peter to do the same. Jesus spent his time in prayer. Peter was too busy sleeping. Jesus came prepared for the full cup. Peter, ready to fight. One was prepared with his own will. The other was prepared with God's. Prayer was the difference. Luke twenty-two forty-nine 49 through 51. 
And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Jesus said, no more of this. <laughs> no more of this cutting off people's ears stuff. All right, that's enough of that. And he touched his ear and he healed it. There's so much tone that I want to read that with, but I have to be careful. No more of this. Jesus wanted their lives. He didn't want them to go out in a blaze of glory with cool guys not looking at explosions. I mean, honestly, if Jesus wanted there to be kind of like a street brawl, I get where Peter's coming from because I would have no fear of what was going on either because you've got Jesus on your side, you know? Like, if I'm getting into a fight, if I'm being honest, and I could pick any one of you guys or Jesus, sorry, you're out. Or maybe Peter was so willing to lay his life down. I remember when I was a kid in South Florida, I was riding my bike one time. There was this, uh, we lived on dirt roads, they're all paved now, but there was this dirt path that I would take that was a shortcut to this other neighborhood. And, and I had turned the corner, which was like the corner of no return for me. And at the end, I saw several kids back there all on their bicycles, like being cool. And I knew in this moment, I should turn my bike around, right? But I'm an idiot. And so I kept driving my bike. And so I get there and they kicked me off of my bike. And I remember thinking, okay, I can run, and this lasts forever, always with these kids, or one of them's going to really know I was here. Like, I'm going to lose, but one of you guys is going to remember and tell this story a little bit different than the rest of you. And that's how it went down. And I think maybe that's what was going on in Peter's mind as well. Or maybe he thinks, hey, Jesus takes care of this, but I'm splitting somebody's head open today. But that's not what Jesus wanted. In fact, that was counter to what Jesus wanted. Jesus wanted the will of the Father. Peter wanted to satisfy his own flesh. So much easier to fight than it is to submit yourself to the will of God. Jesus had been in prayer. Peter had been asleep. See the difference? That's why it's important that we don't have our time and have our time and have our time. Maybe you've been here before. You just said something hurtful to somebody that you care about. Maybe you're not even really sure why. Maybe you're exhausted. Maybe you're not abiding. Maybe you're not praying and reading. Maybe you're having and having and having and having. Verse 46, And they laid hands on him, and they seized him. But one of those drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus puts it back on. No more. Verse 48, Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the Scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus wants their attention to be on the fact that they're just fulfilling the plan of God. This has always been, this was always the plan. He knows that this is going to happen, and so he's willing to turn himself over to it. 
They came prepared, too. You've got your paid trader in Judas, who through his relationship with Jesus would bring them to a secluded place where there weren't a lot of people around, because the people probably wouldn't have stood for this, right? You let Peter lop off somebody's ear and you have a bunch of other people who see that they're going to take Jesus, this is going to be like a big gang fight, right? World stars just looking for a place to happen. You've got armed guards, police, people with torches, lanterns. on a remote mountainside in an olive garden. Jesus says, who, who are you here for? What, do you, what is it that you guys are prepared for? Can you imagine? When Jesus asks questions, so infrequently is he asking actually for a question for information. It's all about introspection. Same thing that God does in the garden. Goes to the garden, Adam is hiding. He says, Adam, where are you? This is not a question of location. It's not a question to get information. It's a question for Adam. Adam, where are you? Where's your heart right now? What's going on, Adam? He's a good father. He's not just looking for discipline from Adam. He's helping Adam understand the world that he lives in now. John chapter 7, verses 43 through 48 reads, So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Nobody ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, You have also been deceived. Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? So when Judas comes, they're not letting this happen again. They're not just sending out a few officers. They're coming with the whole army. They're going to take care of anything that's going to happen. They're going to seize Jesus. They're going to take Jesus. They're going to be successful. They've got their lanterns and their torches. They've got their weapons, their swords. They're long swords, they're short swords. They're ready for absolute war. And Jesus says, who are you coming for? I'm a dude with 10 friends and that guy. They'd failed previously because of who Jesus was. That's what we saw in John chapter 7. They failed because of who Jesus was. And now they'll be successful not because they brought 200 people, they'll be successful because of who Jesus is. This is how this is going to go down. Jesus will submit himself over to this. If it wasn't the Father's will, if it wasn't Jesus' will to be submitted over to this, they'd just leave. This is God's radical grace. All the hate and all the seething anger that these people can muster out of an outflow of their cold, dark hearts are going to be redirected as God's wrath towards sin, defeating and taking the sting from death. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 and 57. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, and it begins right here. 
Peter was ready to fight to the death for the Lord. Maybe that's easier than living for the Lord. Serving God is a lifetime of subtle decisions. So subtle, perhaps, that we don't even realize they're occurring. What will I focus on today to know Jesus more as Lord? What decisions will I make that are filtered through obedience to Christ? How will I pass on what I know of Christ to others who will do the same? But in verse 50, they all left him and fled. Turn with me, if you will, to Mark 14, verse 27. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. If you remember, maybe days earlier, they were all together, happy disciples, walking with their Lord or Rabbi and Judas' part, enjoying each other's company, learning, laughing, joking. Watching the God-man work, they probably felt on top of the world and maybe a bit untouchable. They went from that to being scattered. Jesus was alone. Days. What happened in a matter of days? Mark 14, 28 through 30. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Jesus went to the cross alone, abandoned, with his friends' backs pointed to him. Complete and total betrayal. Even his father withheld fellowship from him because he became sin. And he didn't just become sin, he became your sin, my sin, our sin. It's radical, radical grace. This is why we live for Jesus. Don't just lay our life down. We're not just willing to go out in a blaze of glory. Missing someone's head and slicing off their ear like an idiot. And it's got to kind of glue it back on. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. I love this passage a lot. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, 
so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Remember, Peter is told, you're going to forsake me. Peter says, no, 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 I'm going to die for you. Jesus prays in the garden three times while Peter, James, and John all sleep. Peter denies Jesus three times and then remembers. Because it's hard to live for Christ rather than just die. So the question then for us becomes, what will we do with God's radical grace? Will we live for Him? Or are we just prepared to die for Him? Three things that we can filter daily decisions through. What will I do today? It's kind of how I start out my day because my brain is everywhere, man. I'm like, you show me aluminum foil, I'm distracted, right? Uh, You send me a neat meme, I'm laughing. Uh, Funny Saturday Night Live video of uh, Key and Peele doing the uh, Michael Jordan documentary. I'm like crying on the floor, I'm laughing so hard. What will I do today? Like that, that's kind of how I wire my brain. I sit down and I force myself when I sit down, I write down like a list of all the things that I have to get done. Because otherwise you just kind of sit there pulling down emails, responding to people, taking phone calls. You forget, hey, there's some things that I need to do today. So when that phone call comes in, maybe I don't answer it. When the funny text comes with the funny meme, maybe I categorize it and I come back to it later. When someone else's fire happens, maybe right now it needs to not be my fire because I have some things I'm going to do today. And when I'm living for Christ, some of those things on that list needs to be about my spending time in prayer, my reading in the Word, my obedience to Christ, my having His death live in my body so that people might know Him through me. If your life were to end right now and we were to put a private investigator on your life, what evidence would they find of you being a believer? Maybe leave a breadcrumb, just saying. How will I focus on Jesus as Lord today? I could decide that I'm going to filter my decisions through obedience to Christ. How will I pass on what I know of Christ to others who will do the same? The question really is, will I keep watch? If I was in that olive garden with Jesus, right? because I made it through the 45-minute wait, sat at one of the many, 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 many open tables, would I fall asleep? Or am I found keeping watch? And you can make that decision. You can discipline yourself. To say, I'm going to put a few things aside today because on my list of things is I'm going to be a praying person. Park something. I know it feels like everything has to get done. It doesn't. I saw a wonderful quote from Denzel Washington recently. Said something to the effect of, if you were to die tomorrow, within a week, the company that you work for would have your job position open and they wouldn't close. Think about that. It's not wrong. They're going to have your role open for somebody else to fill. 
Is that what you're really giving everything to? They're moving on from you in a week. Everybody's going to get together. They're going to have some cake. Everybody's going to sign a card. They're going to pass it on in a little little envelope from office to office to office. Everybody's going to sign it for your family. You say, oh, so sorry. Somebody's going to drop like a $10 Starbucks card in there because that's what your life is worth. In two weeks, they'll be done telling funny stories about you at the office. And everything's going to move on. But we give everything to that. It's just another having. Jesus didn't call for us to die. He called for us to live. So what does that look like? Are you going to move to the 1040 window? Learn a new language, maybe? Evangelize a tribe of people? Maybe. But maybe before you do that, in the geography that you're in today, using the language that you know today, you can represent Jesus to the culture that you're in today. That's the radical call. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your grace and that you give us the example of your perfectly obedient son who became sin on our behalf, who endured the cross, who endured becoming our sins so that we could have a way to you because we are desperate and lost. So God, I pray that you allow us to more fully maybe appreciate the depth of Jesus' obedience.